0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Casey Plett, who is the author of A Dream of a Woman, Little Fish, and a Safe Girl to Love, the co editor of Meanwhile Elsewhere Science Fiction and Fantasy from Transgender Writers, and the publisher at Little Puss Press. Her new book is the eighth book in the Field Note series from Biblioasis, and it's called On Community. Welcome, Casey. Hello,
1: Maris. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I, I'm so glad we get to talk about this, that you, that you really went in on the idea of what community is, because I feel like at this moment in time, we're often told that when we feel powerless or overwhelmed by the state of the world, we're supposed to find relief in community. And and in the book, you refer to community as a panacea, often that, that, it, mm. that it's built as such. And that seems like a lot of pressure to put on this one idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that like a weird thing is that community is this idea that, first of all, is both like sold to us by capitalism. You know, there's like all these advertisements that say community government tries to sell you community. Everybody is trying to sort of sell you this idea in some way. But also in the artistic and or sort of liberal lefty circles in which I think both you and I move, community is also brought up as this idea of like oh community is everything or like the way we help ourselves is through community we get to through community and to that uh, this uh, i feel very much like yes but or yes and that community is like is sold to us as this idea that like is going to take care of all of our problems which often it's not or at the and even when it can it is almost never going to do so cleanly.
0: Yeah. And yet there is so much joy and hope to be found in in some community interactions. You even mentioned like people who don't have communities are more, what is it? The mortality rate is lower?
1: It's something, it's something bonkers. Like if you like, uh, you know, it kind of depends on how you remember, measure things like loneliness or isolation or the degree to which you interact with strangers. But but there is like lots of good data on this so much as there can be that, yeah, more like mortality rates are lower, by some measures, it's as much it's as bad as like, being a daily smoker or being a daily like heavy alcohol user, like it's it's really up there, like objectively, it's bad for our health, you know. Um, and so I think also, like, a lot of my hoping to write this book <clears throat> and i started writing it sort of in the initial post vaccine period where all of us were like i think okay i i know how bad isolation is i know the costs of what this does to not have community in some sense so my argument still is very much that like community is necessary it is as necessary as, as friends or family it is like it is a lifeblood it absolutely is um, it's also really complicated and it probably always has costs I think when I was even just a few years younger, I sort of operated on this de facto mode of like, well, let's try to do the good things about community and let's try to push away the bad things about community. You know, I, you know, I know that um, you know, supporting each other is good. And like shutting is bad, you know, like I think if you sort of like drill down into my brain, that's kind of like my, what it would have boiled down to. And a lot of my thinking about this book has been like, well, What if you actually can't separate those things? What if you can't actually tease them apart? Um, And that, I think, is a really, really tough stuff to grapple with.
0: Absolutely. And I love Miriam Taves has been a way for me to understand the Mennonite world uh, that you are a part of. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that always stuck out to me about her is that she details all the ways that shunning and groupthink and lack of privacy can make a person miserable. And yet, her mother is still an active member in the church and gets a lot of joy out of it. Tell me about her work in your relation in relation to yours, and and what you've gotten out of that.
1: Oh goodness, you have another. You have eight hours, right? Great. Okay. <laughs> like... I, I love Miriam's books so much and like they meant a lot to me for a long time and then Miriam and I befriended each other a few years ago, so she's now she's now a friend. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful soul. Yeah, a lot of Miriam's work, you know, does deal with the really sinister sides of community for sure. One thing I think is so interesting is that in Women Talking, um, Women Talking is one of her few books that um explores I think some of like a lot of like the power and strength of community although also conversely when considering the men in the book it also is about explore some of the darkest and grossest and most violent things that community can do one of the interesting things also about that book and um, if you read her previous works her protagonists are always these like snarky kind of funny young women who are like usually kind of out on their own and kind of like um, you know, mucking shit up and um, and uh, sort of like rocketing out of whatever kind of movie communities they're from. And Women Talking is not about that. Women Talking's protagonist is about a man who returns to that community. And there's this line in Women Talking that haunts me when he's, he's talking, when August is talking about why you would go back to the ultra-conservative Mennonite colony that he's from. And he's in London, and he's suicidal. And a librarian who takes him under his wing says something like, she encouraged me to go back there where life had made sense. And I think about that sentence all the time. I have talked about it with, with with Miriam too, you know, I was like, where does life make sense for you? Where does life make sense for us? And in August's case, even though He's had all these painful relations with this uh, with this place that he's from, you know. And then he goes back to the women talking. We get even more. Where does life make sense? I think the answer to that question tends to be a lot more guttural and nonsensical than a lot of us would like to give credit for. But most of us probably have some idea of where life makes sense, and the cocktail community in, um, interacts with that for sure.
0: I love that, and and I you mentioned the book Harlem is nowhere, um, which I, I think is mm-hmm. is a a good segue here that that where life makes sense can sometimes be the idea of a place rather yeah. than the physical.
1: Yeah, this twin of like geography and mythos. So, like, in Harlem is Nowhere, yeah, the author Sharifa Rhodes-Pitts talks about how when, like, she was a teenager in Texas and she was, like, looking at pictures of Harlem and she saw, like, the Harlem Renaissance. And then she also saw, like, pictures of, like, Depression-era poverty and destitution. And there's that line, like, I did not understand how this place could be both haven and ghetto. And there's this review also where there's a guy who's talking about how... um, you know, Harlem is this, like, this neighborhood that has these sort of, like, objective markers, and then also what Harlem means as this, like, mythos to lots and lots of Black people. Um, And, like, that's that thing that I find so interesting, this, like, twinning element of, like, these sort of, like, objective markers, but also this idea of what places communities mean to people. I also thought when I started writing this book, I was like, oh, well, there's, like, a place that can be sort of mapped and pinned down. You have these objective things. This community has X amount of people in it. And then there's this sort of like murkier idea of what community means. And as I started writing the book, I was like, oh, these two things also depend on one another. You can't actually have one without the other. Um, Harlem is Nowhere is like one of my favorite books. I'm so, so glad I stumbled onto it as I was reading it, as I was writing this book. Um, and it talks a lot, I think, about how these two elements intertwine in just one neighborhood.
0: Absolutely. I also love that towards the very beginning of the book, you, you have a bullet point list of what the transgender community is. It could, It's it's so many different things to so many different people, and it depends on the context.
1: Yeah, totally. And like, um, I feel like I've heard over and over again, especially among like, sorry, I hate this term, marginalized populations. But mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this idea that there is one sort of singular cohesive community as to be like kind of nonsensical, you know? Like so something like the trans community, it's like, well, but we're as divided as, as, as anybody else. But of course we use that term all the time. And I mm-hmm. certainly have plenty in my life and lots of trans people do. And lots of oh, I don't feel like I'm part of the trans community or I don't feel like I and I'm fascinated by how communities are sort of like fractured down onto every level. So, you know, trans people are only one in two hundred people. And that's a it's hard to pin down, but that's it's that's a decent enough heuristic, I think. But we are as divided up as most of the people in society by class and by race and by geography and a whole bunch of other things. And like even, you know, in the small towns where I'm from, there are still just like which which seem on the outside as these sort of like cohesive tiny communities, they're still like lecturing all the way down in these like these little subgroups. And I being that feels like a feature not a bug that to me is also sort of like part of how community works is it's almost like this lack of cohesion and so like what you said about when i was first talking about like the transgender community i explored like what are all these different definitions that i could have of it and what if i really tried to unpack like what if i tried to actually come up with a working definition of what that term means um and i kind of try to give it give it a real go. And I don't know if any of them are really accurate or any of them like holistically actually sum everything up. So one thing that I've also sort of tried to do is to get away from saying like the community, because it's such an easy thing to do. And I find myself saying it all the time, both of the communities that I'm part of and communities that I'm not part of. And again, I don't find that necessarily like a bad thing. I think it's kind of cool.
0: That is kind of cool. I love that this book is also very much about book publishing. (laughs) so you worked at biblioasis i did so you have to ask what that's like to to be an author uh at at the e-publisher where you where you once worked
1: yeah yeah it's so funny i mean it was a little surreal for sure you know because my editor used to be my boss and one thing that i thought a lot about too with this book is that like community and like workplaces um, and anybody who work has anybody who has worked for a book publishing know publisher knows that like the relations that authors have with the publisher and the relations of like a publish an office at a publishing house are like two very different things. And it was kind of cool. Yeah. Like I'd also like to hope that it made things easy for all of us. You know, mm-hmm. I knew what was going on inside. Right. And they knew that they they knew that I knew. You know. I think we also meant to. We all we all knew we couldn't bullshit each other.
0: I love that. Um, and and then mm-hmm. you you also talk about Little Puss in this book, yeah, and I, even quote some of your authors, which I think is such a lovely way to talk about trying Lito. to define community. Love her book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think. But one of the things that I I was really drawn to was the idea of you talk about topside press and yeah. the wonderful book tours you did with them and how it turned out that there was only one owner and the lights went out one day and no one knew about it. Yeah. And and you say it's it was beautifully communal and exploitative at the same time. And I think that's it feels as though that's the state of media now. Uh 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 Yep. You also mentioned catapult, which which is very similar. They, an uh, American press, they created this really wonderful community, and then at the whim of a rich owner, they can just make it disappear.
1: Yeah, that stuff has been really heavy on my mind. You know, my topside experience. I'll speak that about that a bit. I was very much taken with it when we started. You know, and it felt like this very like it was kind of for us bias. It was by trans people, for trans people, and we were kind of doing it all on our own. Um, and, you know, it turned out that that wasn't actually true in a lot of ways. It was a very community-oriented project. There were lots and lots of people who, like, showed up and donated labor and donated time. I include myself among them. Um, I mean, I got some career things out of it, too. Plenty of people selflessly gave themselves to that project with no, uh, without such... Um, uh, outcomes or expectations of them. And a lot of ways, it was really awesome. It was also controlled by one guy, and when he decided that he was done, then it was done. And, you know, I, I felt a little raw about that and still do in a lot of ways. What I have learned since that whole experience is how, like, not very exceptional it is. And I think that even in projects that seem really community-oriented, and that seem like they are kind of from the ground up and they are by and for a certain community no matter what someone's probably always got the power somewhere someone always controls something somewhere
0: oh and and that just i mean the idea of community as as a marketing tool <laughs> <laughs> and i i think you get into it really with co-working spaces which the worst of that kind of space is is the Hacker House. Tell me, tell me about that.
1: I was fascinated by that. Okay, so for the most part, I tried to be um, wary of expounding too many opinions when it came to communities that I was not a part of. And um, But the Hacker House thing, I was like, whoa, that blows my mind. You know, I always think of a communal house as like, you know, I think about like, um, to of my associations with those are like, the hippie houses of my northwestern youth or like like the um the hutterite colonies I would visit as a child. Hutterites are like the sort of an offshoot of their nights As opposed to like techies who are like, you know, working for Silicon Valley and like deciding to live with ten other people in some, you know, in a house. And so particularly with this organization called Launch House, which seems to still be up. I was really fascinated by how much they were selling this idea of community and hustling this idea of community that, as it turned out, also really sheltered some pretty gross things. And I am really wary of community when it is used as a buzzword, as a way of sort of like passing through doors that maybe otherwise you shouldn't get to pass through.
0: I love the way you talk about digital spaces, too, in this book. Thank you. Because, you you know, we both remember the the good old days on Twitter where, yeah, there were trolls everywhere and so many bad things going on. But it still really was a way to connect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's like. I don't know, man. I think sometimes social media gets a bad rap. Like, yes, we know that like it's probably awful and probably cooking our brains and like they all seem doomed to some degree. But also like, I don't know. I'm barely old enough to remember life before the Internet, but I do. And I don't want it back, you know, like, yeah, I don't. Um, I do not want the only way I can like contact another human after 10 at night to be like, Waking them up with a loud jangling ringing device that disturbs <laughs> their household. I don't. think that life. You know, I think there are some really like beautiful, good things that come out of social media, and not that I'm really confident we'll get a better world. And I'm not. I'm. I'm, so, I'm. I would say I'm somewhat pessimistic about that. But I do think it's possible. Like I think it is possible that we could build better platforms or build better ways of living on these. Um, on social media internet platforms if we could somehow cr- demand and create them i really do believe that
0: i think that's uh, right
1: yeah right
0: fewer algorithms a little bit more user control something yeah i yeah
1: I, I not i'm not you know i'm not super sure what that looks like but i feel like there's been enough good things that have happened on them and yeah like that's possible. Remember, remember, it was like, it was like almost exactly a year ago is when Elon actually took over Twitter. And, and it kind of seemed like actually that the site itself might like literally crumble in a couple of weeks and everyone was like, Oh, man, like, I know I complain about this site so much. But like, I've met all these people here. And I kind of like, you know, I'll miss you guys and all that. And um, it was like this, like, outpouring where everyone was all of a sudden, like, Oh, wait, like, there's been a lot of good things that have happened to me on here. And like, that's real. That's really real. You know, and I also think like I remember older platforms like LiveJournal Journal or MySpace, which feels sort of weird or cheesy to talk about, but also is true. One tries to think about like pre-algorithm social media. like there are some there are kind of some examples of that, right? There are like um I don't think we're completely without precedent
0: here. yeah, i think I think that's right. right. And maybe related to to that is, I also really love in this book, how you talk about treating strangers. Yeah. Which you're a trans woman, you have every right to be guarded. And yet,
1: I mean, yeah, I just, I really doggedly, doggedly, with all my heart, believe that there is a balance that most of us know in our bones to some degree about a distinction between guardedness and openness. And I think that. First of all, plenty of the people I know in my life who have survived some of the most awful things at the hands of strangers are also some of the people who are like some of like the kindest people I know to people they don't know, you know? And I think about like even times in my life where I have like some really, really unpleasant shit happen you know, the next day, I still had to get up and go to work. And like, I had to get a coffee from somebody. And like, I don't want to be a dick to that guy who's giving me my coffee. I want to be nice to him. You know, like, that's the kind of thing I think that like, lots of us in our bones sort of understand in some way. And so I really do believe that like, when it comes to talking to strangers, like, there has to be a way to next protection and openness. And I think that throughout the course of human history, that to some degree or another and often imperfectly but we end up living out that kind of balance anyway because you have to go exist in the world you know and i also think that like i don't know the majority of the world knows what it's like to like be a woman walking around in public right like all of us kind of know about like all of us sort of understand i think the majority of the world understands those stakes to some degree or another and i don't know i believe like I believe in all those studies that like talking to strangers makes you happier and that talking to strangers is like a way to ward off a lot of the bad things that come with isolation. I believe that with all my heart, I always do. I always have and I always will. Even though, yeah, you know, I mean, like I carry trauma around with me. Certainly of like things that have happened between me and strangers. I still really, really do believe that.
0: I also feel like and and maybe this this speaks to the, the city as a community, but um growing up I was taught to fear anyone in the city that I that I yeah. don't know and I moved to New York City. And mm-hmm. I remember specifically not smiling, like just mm-hmm. kind of like don't fuck with me. And it, it's taken a long time to change that mindset.
1: Yeah. Um, so, where and like, tell me, like, where do you think that like that fear, that like like that that idea came from?
0: The evening news. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and it does seem like one of these, one of the negative parts about a small community, like living in a small town. Is that there are these? Well, you you use the word assumptions many, many, many times in this book, and of course, we we have to make assumptions about things we don't know, and yet,
1: <laughs> yeah, and yet they're like it's like an ev- inevitable part of life, you know. It is like Kristen Domit talks a little bit about like this in her book, um, about like you kind of have to do on a day to day. It's like how you literally sort of like function moving through a day. But it's good to examine those things. And I think it's especially good to examine those things when you find yourself like acting with negativity or fear or unkindness to other people. How many times sure it's like it's justified, but I mean like it's good to re-examine those assumptions. And I always think I will never ever forget a friend of mine. Um, she's a trans woman in Winnipeg, who said to me once, you know, we don't have the right to feel safe. What we have is the right to be safe. And I think about that all the time, you know, like, um, that's like a heavy statement. And there's like a lot of like contradictions involved in it. But I also think there's probably a lot of truth in it. And so when it comes to these ideas of assumptions, again, they'll like happen that's kind of like on a day to day, like, level and scale, you can't really control, you can't not have assumptions. They're they're like, they're like part of like the stuff that day to day functioning. But there's some probably some key ones that's good to really sort of like stop and examine and
0: think about. Absolutely. I wonder if before before I ask you for sure, book recommendations, mm-hmm. you do you mentioned towards the end of the book that like you really weren't gonna try to define community and, and then something's the, changed. I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. Um there's this line in Michael Warner's book, Publics, Encounter, Publics. And it's just like an, like an aside. But he wonders this idea of community as an ongoing space of encounter. That's what it is, right? Man, it would be so embarrassing if I misquoted my own book. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, an ongoing space of encounter. And my mind just kind of like blew when I read that. I was like, that makes so much sense. An ongoing space of encounter. And that to me is like a reasonable model for idea of what community can look like. You can encapture it from like as like a small or as big or as weird as the idea of community can get. And I like the way that it emphasizes both like a space, like something you can kind of point to, even if it's like a digital space. And I like how it points out this idea of something ongoing, of something that is recursive or something that like continues to happen that there's sort of like an active verb involved in it. I so an that. ongoing space of, yeah, an ongoing space of encounter. I didn't intend to define community when I when I started writing this book, I was like, that's, that's I'm not sure if that's something I'm interested in. I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's something that's going to be helpful. But then I saw an ongoing space of encounter, and I was like, okay, okay, big ups, Michael Warner, I'll give you that one, <laughs> like, that, that works for me.
0: I love that. Um, so, Casey, can you please recommend mm-hmm. some books for us?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the first ones that comes to mind, since we were talking about Miriam Taves, I recommend something in her deep backlist that no one's read called A Boy of Good Breeding. It came out in 1998. And it's like, it's like her one book that's kind of happy. When I was a bookseller, I used to get, when I was a bookseller, people would come in, this happened to several times, and they would ask me, basically be like, I want to read something good, but I want to read something that's not depressing. And A Boy of Good Breeding is, like, one of the few, like, literary novels um, that is about the, you know, the, the silly, stupid stuff that, quote-unquote, literary fiction tends to be made of, but it's not a bummer. Um, so A Boy of Good Breeding by Miriam Tave. It's her second book. I thought I was the
0: completist. Uh And so now I have to get this made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me know what you think
1: about it. It's one of her few books that doesn't have Mennonites in it, which perhaps is a tell. Um, But it's a really, it's a, it's a really good one. And it's very, um, it's very sweet. It's very charming. Um, And it's also got a lot of good stuff to chew on. I'll also recommend uh, Invasions by Calvin Gimpelevich. Um, it is a piece of trans literature that, man, I wish that like everyone read. It's one of my favorite short story collections of like the last decade. Invasions, Calvin Kipelovich. Um Calvin's this trans man and he, this it's like a story collection. Like a lot of it is speculative in nature. A lot of it is really, really, really smart about class Um and it's just, like, this, like, bizarro, beautiful sort of, like, object from another world that, like, reads so quickly and is so intelligent and is so thought-provoking. Yeah. One thank of my faves.
0: You. I love that. Thank, Casey, thank you so much. On Community, out now. Thank you, Maris. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.